0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, and on your screen once again is the logo of Activision Blizzard, the beleaguered video game publisher facing multiple lawsuits, both from a federal body in the EEOC and a state body in California's Department of Fair Employment and Housing, which you might also hear referred to as DFEH. Now, in a video we did very recently, we talked about how the EEOC, that federal body, is trying to settle their lawsuit with Activision Blizzard, and to do so, they've put forth a document called a consent decree in which Activision Blizzard promises to pay at least $18 million either to the folks that have been affected by sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, or retaliation related to either of those two things, or that will be donated to women's charities or retained by themselves as part of a diversity initiative. And as you might suspect from the size of Activision Blizzard, a number of folks have gotten upset with the size of that particular settlement decree. $18 million seems like very little. And so when the state of California's DFEH challenged the EEOC and the settlement decree, well, all hell broke loose as we've been covering over the last week. As part of that breaking loose of hell, the CWA, a labor union, actually filed an intervention document of its own seeking to have the consent decree reviewed by the court in what is called a fairness hearing. And it's on that point that we're going to focus our discussion today, a little bit more narrow than some of the broad readings we've been looking at. But a lot of you asked me after I left it off at the end of the prior video to talk about what this letter actually says from that body. So on your screen right now is a letter dated October 6, 2021, just eight days or so ago from a law firm called Weinberg, Roger, and Rosenfeld. And they say, Dear Consul, this office represents the Communications Workers of America, which is in contact with a large number of employees of defendants in the above referenced case. Now, as you could probably tell from that sentence, which we have no reason to believe is inaccurate, that doesn't necessarily put the CWA, the Communications Workers of America, in a place where they would have what we would consider judicial standing, a reason to actually get involved in the lawsuit itself. They're in contact with a large number of employees of defendants. Heck, I'm in contact with a few employees of defendants myself. I mean, that's the kind of thing that is useful information, doesn't necessarily mean the EEOC has to listen to you, doesn't necessarily mean that you can intervene in the court case. And yet, just six days later, after they filed this letter with the EEOC, they asked to intervene. They asked for this fairness hearing stating, as I noted in that prior video, that they represent a number of Activision current and former employees. And that might seem like a small bit of language to you, but in a court document, that sounds like they've been retained for some kind of professional reason. And they're doing this so that they can tell the court, yes, we have standing here. We are involved in some official capacity with what is happening at Activision Blizzard and what is happening most specifically as between Activision Blizzard and the EEOC and the DFEH. Now that's a bit of an interesting point because the CWA is a labor union. Activision is not a unionized shop as of right now. But it also tells you why this letter was sent in the first place. If you aren't familiar with labor organizing in the United States, the primary way in which it happens is that a majority of the workers at a given work location, working for a specific employer, agree that they should be unionized. And there's a whole process that goes into that first getting the election actually started with some percentage of folks signing cards or what have you winning that election again with the majority of employers, having it certified, collectively bargaining. It's a whole process. And it's one of those things that I have no doubt the Communications Workers of America would like to be involved in at Activision. In fact, as we've looked at before, the Communications Workers of America have been involved with this for a month or more now. As they put out in a press release in the middle of September, employees of Activision Blizzard file unfair labor practice charge against the gaming company In support of game developers at Activision Blizzard King, a cross-platform gaming company based in Santa Monica, the Communications Workers of America has formally filed ULP charges, unfair labor practice charges, against the company. So the Communications Workers of America actually filed the charge on behalf of these employees. Why are they doing this? Well, the easiest way to think about it is essentially that they want to show off. They want the employees at Activision Blizzard to see an entity in the CWA that is doing things for them that would be useful if it were a formal certified body. And I think you will see that writ large in a number of the aspects of what they're complaining about with respect to the consent decree. In particular, you're going to want to pay attention to reference to section seven, of the National Labor Relations Act, which we can zoom to here is actually 29 U.S.C. 157 because numbering's never easy in the law, which says employees shall have the right to self-organize, to form, join, or assist labor organizations to bargain collectively. It is the baseline foundational principle for how unions are organized at a federal level. It's also worthwhile to note this law in particular says it's also their right to refrain from doing all of that. They can't be forced into working with a union to help their body unionize. But suffice it to say, Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act is something that the CWA will evince a specific concern about throughout this document, ostensibly talking about the consent decree. Now, does that make them wrong? No, absolutely not. They raise a number of good points. They also raise a number of What I would call in the law specious points, points that are directly related to whether or not they can form a union at Activision, things that don't directly relate to the consent decree, misreadings, and things along those lines. Primarily, it appears to me that they wanted to get some high number of paragraphs here, and they finished with 31. Now, we're going to be going through all of these. Not all of them deserve the same kind of background discussion or even reference to primary source material. We're going to be bouncing through a number of documents, so stay with me. The CWA did not organize these in a fashion that's super easy to organize with respect to the consent decree itself, but we're going to do our best. So let's dive in. The first complaint. Why were the employees not consulted prior to the agreement of the proposed consent decree? These EEOC standards regarding consent decree decrees require communication with employees who are affected by a consent decree before entering into any proposed consent decree. As I noted at the end of the prior video in this series, that's a lot of use of the term consent decree, one of which might be a typographical error. But suffice it to say, the main charge here is, why didn't you tell all of the employees of Activision Blizzard that you were preparing this proposed consent decree? It is required that you do so. Which, if you actually go to the documentation that the EEOC puts forth on this, is clearly not the case. If you go to look at notice to affected individuals regarding their settlement standards, you get a line, something like this. Although the commission determines appropriate relief and suits it files, although we have primary discretion, says the EEOC, claimants in commission cases should be consulted regarding relief the commission is considering accepting and should be notified prior to execution of a final agreement of the relief they will receive in the settlement. Exceptions to the first requirement can be made in class matters involving large number of claimants. However, charging parties should always be consulted before acceptance by the Commission of Relief Offers, and in class matters, the Commission should consider asking the court to hold a fairness hearing, which is in fact what the CWA is trying to force. So as a lawyer, you look at a paragraph like that, and it does sound like the EOC in general wants to tell people when it's going to enter into these consent decrees, but that makes a lot more sense when it's one, two, half dozen people than it does when it's hundreds. And the EOC has put forth to the court that it believes that its settlement is covering damages that could cover 100 or more eligible applicants for that fund. So they think this is a pretty big class for what it is the EEOC does. And most importantly, every bit of language there is should. It's not must. It's discretionary on the part of the EEOC. And with respect to their own manuals, it's not usually the kind of thing that a judge can come in and say, you agency are doing your agency's thing wrong if there isn't a statutory requirement for something. So when the CWA comes in and says it's required, eh, the EEOC generally likes to do it, but there are reasons why they wouldn't. And at the baseline level, we've still got the problem, which is who are you? The EEOC might say, why why are you talking about this? You say you've been in contact with a lot of these employees. What does that mean? Now you're filing an intervention document with the court I'm not sure you have standing. I'm not sure that I have to listen to to you. So that's always going to be potentially at the back of your mind as we go through these. That being said, the EOC is a political organization and they're a political organization that is designed to protect the civil rights of employees in the United States. So they might see this kind of stuff coming from the CWA, this kind of stuff coming from the state of California and say, all right, well, maybe we can just have a fairness hearing. Mm, It's hard to say whether they'll give that ground. They certainly were unwilling to give it directly to California. That's why they brought out the big guns as we talked about earlier this week. Paragraph two, the consent decree has a reference to waivers. We have not seen any potential waivers and we are concerned that they be limited to the narrow allegations of the complaint and do not affect any private right of action or claim under state law, other federal laws, or other laws or regulations. Now here, this isn't exactly correct either, at least in terms of language. If we go to the consent decree and we do a little control F and we say, show me waivers, you'll see only one reference to waivers in this document. No waiver modification or amendment of any provision of this decree will be effective unless made in writing. It's essentially saying this thing can't be amended. So in terms of the letter writing, this seems to be some kind of boilerplate from a standard complaint document that the CWA might put together. Again, fine, because we can understand what they mean, which is that they actually want to say there are references to releases, not waivers, that you can find in this document all over the place. Right, And it says, most predominantly, that there will be a release of claims forms that is created as part of this whole thing, and that's what everybody wants to see. So even though waiver isn't the right term, I do tend to agree with the union on this point that it's a little bit unclear what is intended to be waived when the EEOC says there's going to be a waiver. So understand how this works. Activision Blizzard is going to put $18 million in a bank. And they're going to have somebody that they pay for that's going to be called the claims administrator. And that claims administrator is going to get the list of potential applicants for that fund. They're going to put all these things together. They're going to submit them to the EEOC. The EEOC is going to decide who has earned that money and is going to put a list together of how that money is going to be divvied up amongst the various people that could get money out of the fund. And then it's going to be distributed to them. Before it's distributed to them, they're going to have to sign a release claim form. Right, And that's going to be something that looks like I can't sue Activision Blizzard for X, Y, or Z. That's what I'm getting paid for. That's what the EEOC has put together here is a decree that says we, the EEOC, won't sue you. And then these other people have the ability to go claim some portion of that money and they agree not to sue you. But the devil's in the details. And it's unclear exactly what those people will be agreeing to waive suit on, especially when you look at the background history of this and you see that the EEOC believes that they had taken on the harassment claims and had given the equal pay and sex discrimination based on promotion and hiring and employment questions claims over to the state of California. So it would surprise me if as part of that release form, they were asking women at Activision to release everything related to the pay discrimination claims, but they're almost certainly going to be asking them to release Activision of all sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination and retaliation claims, which will overlap with what they could have potentially received in the state of California lawsuit. And so if that sounded complicated, you're not wrong. It's complicated to explain to the women at Activision when they're in the room with you, we're gonna get to that in a couple of pages when the union, I think rightly, complains about the length of time that has been afforded for private counsel. Suffice it to say, The EEOC doesn't see a problem here. In fact, when they responded in their court documents to this specific charge that was made by the department at California, that we were gonna be getting rid of your California complaints, they said, no, no, that's not how this consent decree works. The consent decree gets rid of our ability to sue Activision, but it's otherwise voluntary. Or in their words, if the proposed decree is signed, it will release the EEOC's Title VII claim, the federal law claim, and leave every other existing claim intact. All the EEOC is saying is, we won't sue you over Title VII problems. Each potential class member, that's the women at Activision, will have a choice whether to release their individual claims and collect from the class fund under the proposed decree. So what the EEOC is saying here is, when we sign this whole thing up, it doesn't do anything at all. If all of the women said, no, 18000000 million isn't enough, we're going with California, that's fine. The consent decree still takes effect. The $18 million still has to be apportioned either to a charity or to the diversity initiatives. And all the women keep all of their rights to bring whatever suit they want to under the state of California. That's all well and good in legal land. But the union has a complaint because they don't know what these folks are actually going to be asked to waive. It says, under the terms of the proposed decree, the EEOC claims, Individuals who are found eligible for relief will receive private legal representation from a referral list of respected plaintiff's employment lawyers or a lawyer of their choice at no cost to them. Although the EEOC is not a party to any release between claimants and employers, the EEOC has had a longstanding position that releases incidental to its consent decrees cannot contain any provisions that are contrary to public policy. Accordingly, Activision has agreed that the releases will not include, among other things, arbitration, confidentiality, disclosure provisions, non-disparagement, and no rehire clauses defendants have also agreed to specifically notify potential claimants of the department's lawsuit. That's California's lawsuit in the text of the release, including the claims included in the department's lawsuit. Now that's all well and good for the EEOC to say in this paragraph, but I'm on California side. I'm on the union side as that doesn't actually appear in the consent decree itself. So someone asking the question, what are you trying to release is important. Most specifically you wanna make sure that the ladies here are not releasing their payroll complaint claims. The things that the EEOC had ostensibly given to the state of California to charge them with. Now harassment is going to be this weird overlapping issue as a result of the work sharing agreement that however it went wrong, definitely went wrong. And now there's two lawsuits that overlap on subject material. But either way, I think the union brings a valid complaint. Paragraph three. The settlement amount of $18 million seems woefully inadequate. This would provide the maximum settlement for only 60 workers. If any significant number of workers received the maximum under federal law, there would be little availability for many other workers adversely affected. We are concerned about how the EEOC got to that number and how it believes that number will be fairly distributed. Please explain. And there's a couple of things going on here. One of which is that this is a negotiated position. In general, you've got a negotiated settlement no side is necessarily supposed to get everything that it wants out of that negotiation. You don't have to like the process. I know a number of you have come into the comments and said, this isn't fair. Activision Blizzard could just pay its way out. And the EOC is letting them get away with pennies. I don't necessarily disagree with you. It's the way the statute works. It's the way that an agency power is supposed to be used. Congress puts forth the rules. The agency goes and executes based on those rules. And if you don't like it, The right folks to complain to about are the legislatures, specifically in this case, the federal legislature for putting that cap on, not expanding it in the way that it should be expanded, et cetera, et cetera. The other problem with this conversation point though is the notion of maximum settlement. As we talked about, the punitive and direct damages claims that you can get redress for under these specific acts is maximized at $300,000. That's how you get 18 million into 60 workers. But the EEOC in general isn't in the business of doing punitive damages as much as it is in getting compensation back to the people that were wrongly affected. So if we go and we look at how this is actually articulated, you'll see the focus is on getting you the money for the psychological care that you needed, getting you front pay and back pay and making you whole from whatever it is that you were damaged by in terms of Activision. But when we talk about punitive damages, They're only available, as this document says, with respect to malice or reckless indifference to the federally protected rights of an aggrieved individual. And we don't see that language really appearing in the consent decree. And that'll be another thing that the union wants to discuss. But suffice it to say, it's a much higher standard. You can have discrimination. You can have harassment that happens. But it doesn't necessarily rise to the level of malice or reckless indifference until you can show that that was the case at Activision. Now, one of the ways that you can show that is it just happens so often and so much that it has to be reckless indifference, which you could argue the point happens when there are hundreds of cases, which the EEOC says that there likely are. But until you get there, you can't charge for punitive damages at all. So the first thing the EEOC is going to be trying to do is ascertain what are the direct damages? What did you lose? How did you have to pay for relocation? You had to move all the way out of California because of all this. What did that cost you? What did your psychology cost you? What did pharmaceuticals cost you? Whatever it might relate to this situation. We want to make sure you get whole there first, and then we can talk about punishing Activision. Now, if you do find that malice or reckless disregard of the complaining party's rights, you can have punitive damages up to the maximum allowed put against you. And here's where Activision might actually be in trouble because the punitive damages are supposed to be calculated based on what you all really want them to be calculated on. Revenues and liabilities of the business, fair market value of the assets, the amount of liquid assets on hand, respondents' propensity to generate income in the future, projected earnings. Activision Blizzard, enormous. If they are going to be charged with punitive damages, you actually can, in my opinion, make a defense of really, really high damages that get you to that $300,000 maximum amount. The question becomes, and the EEOC doesn't know the answer to this. That's how the settlement is happening. It hasn't been fully litigated. They've only interviewed however many people they've interviewed. How many people were affected? How many people are going to be eligible for this fund? How is that number going to be calculated? And I think this is a good question, but it also doesn't necessarily have to be a perfect answer from the EEOC. The EEOC can say, look, we got an EEO consultant that's going to be our eyes and ears at Activision for three years or more. And that was worth some amount of money. If we didn't get that, Activision was willing to pay $30 million, whatever it might have been at the negotiating table. But we viewed that to be super important. So it's always a give and a take in those negotiations. And just giving or just taking doesn't necessarily make the document unfair. It's all part and parcel to that process. Still, $18 million certainly got under a lot of people's skin, and I don't really blame them. Paragraph four, this proposed consent decree seems to be an attempt to preempt the parallel suit brought by the Department of Fair Employment and Housing under California law. California law provides for greater remedies, and the department seems much more willing to aggressively and effectively pursue litigation. Underline effectively there, I'm not as positive as the CWA, but hey. Please explain why this consent decree was suddenly entered into shortly after the department's complaint was filed and has become active. Do you plan to seek input from the department? Why was this not coordinated with the department? All are excellent questions, I think. I particularly like the question of why did this get filed and then settled immediately? Uh, But I think that now we can see that that's part of record keeping and then they were having difficulty communicating with the department in California at the time. And this was deemed to be something of a saving throw for making sure that the record was straight. I think that becomes more and more likely as we see how California is responding to the proposed consent decree. Otherwise, I don't know that the EEOC can't answer that they tried to work with the department on this. Certainly they have represented to the court under penalty of perjury that that was in fact the case. And of course the department has accused them of lying or more specifically in legalese breaching their duty of candor to the court. And so this continues to be a fighting kind of position, but here's where you really say CWA, okay, good points. I think that's for the department and the EEOC to work out. And telling the EEOC that the department seems to be much more willing to aggressively and effectively pursue litigation is an open question. Certainly the department in California has evinced a desire to litigate this thing. They have been combative. They can check out the email chains with Activision, with the EEOC and see how aggressive and snarky, frankly, they are in their legal exchanges with these parties. And maybe that's what you want. Maybe that's the strategy that you want. A gladiator going and trying to take Activision down a peg, the EEOC takes a different strategy and says, look, we don't know how this is going to go. That's a multi-billion dollar corporation. They have lawyers. Litigation is anything but a certainty. Let's get a settlement that we can all live with. Neither one of those strategies is really wrong. It's just a matter of a difference of opinion. And generally speaking, the EEOC doesn't have to explain itself to the department in California or a union that doesn't represent a unionized workforce. Paragraph five. The consent decree requires notice to the employees. We have not seen that former notice, so please provide any proposed notice. That's fine. I mean, that's really the most ancillary of ancillary documents is going to be telling them that there's a settlement. If you've ever had an email address of any kind, you've probably got consent notices to a class action in that email, some kind of battery class action where you're owed a coupon from Energizer, whatever it might be in that email that maybe you ignore, maybe you file everything that is related to it to try to get some amount of money back. You're used to seeing these notices. They aren't really that different. Paragraph six, the consent decree refers in several parts to retaliation. We are concerned that retaliation will encompass claims under state law and other federal laws, such as the National Labor Relations Act. Please explain how you intend to limit any waiver to retaliation only under Title Seven. And again, this goes back to that release of claims form and what it means. And we don't really know what it is that they're aimed at. We know that when the EEOC is evaluating whether or not you're going to be getting money from this particular class action kind of thing, they're going to be looking at your specific claim for sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, or related retaliation. And that related is doing some work. The EEOC is focused specifically on sexual harassment and pregnancy discrimination and retaliation related to those two things. Chances are, and unfortunately we have to speculate because as I said, I tend to agree that the EEOC could have put this document in as part of its consent decree and didn't. It looks like what they're gonna ask you to waive is retaliation, sexual harassment, and pregnancy discrimination claims under any laws. And that would make sense. It would still leave open everything that California is doing with respect to the pay discrimination, but we don't know what we don't know. So it makes sense to ask the question. We do know, however, that they are going to be asking for a release of something to which the EEOC doesn't have jurisdiction, right? All eligible claimants shall be provided an opportunity to consult an independent attorney to advise on the release of claims to which the EEOC is not a party. You're going to be releasing things that aren't specifically under this EEOC charge or this consent decree. I'm willing to bet that they're going to relate to the things that the EEOC is actually charging. But again, we don't know. What we do know is that it will be something broader. And I think the question is justified. Paragraph seven, the consent decree refers to Activision Publishing and its related subsidiaries and companies. We do not have a definition. Please explain. And here's where we start to get into some of the more specious arguments, right? What are the subsidiaries of Activision? They aren't a defined term. And yes, in my world, we would define all terms we're going to use that way. But as we scroll back up to page one, as I said, the CWA didn't put these in order for us, you'll see that they are defined essentially by the way that they are represented. Activision Publishing and its related subsidiaries and companies with employees in the United States, Blizzard and its related subsidiaries and companies with employees in the United States, et cetera, et cetera. And then the representation is our wholly owned subsidiaries of Activision Blizzard. So what we are talking about on the org chart is everything that is wholly owned subsidiary of Activision Blizzard that falls under these families, Activision Publishing, Blizzard, and King. And that's the Activision family as we know it. This is a waste of time kind of paragraph, not terribly useful, especially because of the way they represent as being wholly owned. It's only wholly owned stuff of the primary defendant. Paragraph eight, we are concerned that this provides for non-admissions clauses. Given the scope, breadth, long-term nature, and seriousness of the allegations, we do not understand why the EEOC gave these defendants a pass of a non-admission clause. Please explain. If you aren't familiar with what they're talking about, non-admission is essentially this big paragraph that we talked about when we talked about the consent decree originally that says Activision denies that they subject any individual or group of individuals to sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, and or related retaliation, deny all allegations of wrongdoing, deny any group or systemic discrimination, deny that any of their policies and procedures are inadequate. However, the parties recognize that Through this decree, the parties can avoid the expense distraction and possible litigation associated with such a dispute, and we wish to resolve all of our issues through this decree. It is a fairly standard methodology for entering into a settlement with another party, and it is, at its baseline, one of the things that the EEOC offers as a benefit to settling with them. If we go to the resolving a charge page that the EEOC puts forth on its website, you see you can settle at any time. What are the advantages? Number three, there is no admission of liability. To some extent, this is what Activision is buying. You don't have to like it, but they're spending $18 million. They're putting up somebody for three years that they're going to have to answer to that's going to have a direct phone line to the EEOC for that entire time. For a reason. And the reason is so that they can have a piece of paper that says, we aren't admitting to anything. If you want to litigate against Activision, you want to win that case, you might well get a guilty verdict. And you might well get something that says to the world that Activision Blizzard did all these very bad things. But the EEOC, instead of California, makes the judgment call. It says, that is a risky proposition. And we can get money for the women affected right now. And this doesn't really mean anything. So we give this to the employers that we negotiate with as the benefit to doing this. And the CWA disagrees, but it's a strategy question really for the EEOC. Paragraph nine, the consent decree seems to cover defendants as well as their parents, subsidiaries, officers, directors, agents, successors, and assigns. Does this consent decree then absolve the individuals from any further liability? Please explain. And once again we find ourselves in the world of specious legal argumentation if we actually go and look at where they're quoting here we can see the sentence this decree shall be binding on and enforceable against defendants as well as their related parties that set of groups that they just named it doesn't say anything about a loss of liability this means that when the defendants sign it it's also going to bind all these people that are associated with it and if we actually go and look at what this thing does you'll see no reference to those other parties, right? The parties agree that this decree completely and finally resolves all allegations, issues, and claims raised by the EEOC against defendants. Not defendants and their next of kin, not defendants and their favorite rock band, just defendants. So this paragraph up here, probably inartfully drafted because those other folks aren't actually a party to this agreement, does basically nothing with respect to those claims. The EEOC is releasing the defendants not that whole other group. Again, that in an artful drafting means eh, you can ask the question, but it's just a little bit of a waste of time. Paragraph 10, the consent decree contemplates that individuals who receive any settlement will be required to sign a waiver or release. Please provide a copy of any such release or waiver so that we can assure that it is limited to the specific allegations of the complaint and of the EEOC's authority. This is actually the same complaint as that waiver concept that they put forth in the second paragraph. Still a good one. We still don't know exactly what these folks are going to be asked to have waived, but certainly the EEOC is not bound to have the waiver limited only to things within its jurisdiction. It is up to the affected individuals to say, hey, you're gonna get $100,000. You can sign this release with whatever parameters it has in front of it, or you can take your chances with litigation done by the state of California. And that's what the lawyer that we talked about as part of the consent decree is for, is to say, look, here's that situation there's a risk there. They might get nothing. Activision Blizzard might win the case. You have an amount of money right now, which maybe you think is inadequate. Maybe it's worth it to roll the dice, but to have that conversation, that's what a lawyer does in the room. Either way, CWA doesn't really have standing to talk about it and certainly doesn't have the right to limit it to specific allegations, et cetera. So the CWA is trying to insinuate itself as that defender of the employees. Nothing wrong with that. A lot of good union shops in the United States, but you can see how they're operating here. And we'll see it even more as we get into the deeper paragraphs. Paragraph 11, we have not seen a copy of any claim form. Will you provide, please provide us a copy of the proposed claim form. Again, this is like the notice document. Generally speaking, there's not going to be a lot that's too terribly exciting there. I would focus on the waivers and the release forms, but is what it is. Paragraph 12, we would like some input into the hiring of the EEO consultant. We are concerned to make sure that the consultant is independent, knowledgeable, and vigorous. And if you're familiar with how the EEOC responded to the state of California's complaints against this consent decree, this is the kind of paragraph that I think the EEOC, or at least the people in charge of this particular action, really don't like. This sounds, at least in subtext, at least in passive aggression, like you don't trust the EEOC to pick the consultant that they're going to pick that's going to report to them to do what they are supposed to do. That the EEOC has somehow been co-opted by employers across the country and they're not going to do what you want. And again, this comes up as a bit of a trouble because the CWA doesn't actually represent a unionized shop. Either way, the EEOC is very likely to say, no, get out of town. Paragraph 13, we also would like to know how the EEOC will determine whether someone is an eligible claimant as defined in the consent decree. Please explain how you intend to determine the list of potential claimants. Now here, some good, some bad, right? As we just talked about, the eligible claimants are essentially just said to be by the EEOC whoever we deem to have been harassed or discriminated against based on pregnancy or retaliated against for either of those reasons, right? We're just going to figure that out. Hey, if you were employed by the defendant from September 1st, 2016 until now, and we determine that you were harassed or discriminated against or retaliated against, and you experienced a harm related to that, then you're going to be an eligible claimant. That's all the EEOC tells you. It doesn't tell you how the numbers are going to be determined. And so I think that's a legitimate beef. And I pointed it out when I originally read the consent decree, which it says, There's not a calculation here. There's no number here. What what am I looking at? Is this going between 10,000 and 100,000? What do you think somebody is going to get out of this? And truth be told, I think part of this is that they're gonna collect who they think are the claimants here and start to move the number around what that might be. Potentially to hit $18 million exactly. It's really unclear. It depends on how many people wind up being eligible claimants. The other thing that they said here is, how are you gonna be able to tell who a potential claimant is? That one is far more specious. All it says here is that Activision will tell you who's worked for it in the last five years. Now, the problem that the union has here with that is they say, what about misclassified workers under state or federal law? As I have indicated, CWA is in contact with a large number of individuals and the department is in contact with a large number of individuals. How do you intend to incorporate any individuals that we know about former employees and all people who were adversely affected by the illegal practices of defendants that they are entitled to submit a claim form. And the answer to that is they aren't. They aren't going to talk to the department. They aren't going to talk to the union. They're going to get these lists. They're going to do whatever due diligence they have on them. They don't have to depend on these other folks. And they definitely don't have to depend on all people who were adversely affected. You could argue that people that read the article about what was charged against Activision Blizzard were adversely affected. There was some bad stuff in there. But this is kind of that overreach concept that we saw the department in California do a little bit. We've seen CWA now do it. Although certainly the EEOC is guilty of that as well in some of the responses that they have made. Welcome to litigation, folks. It's not pretty. Paragraph 14, provide us a copy of the charge number at the EEOC so that we can see the scope of any release. Unclear whether that would happen to the EEOC. It would surprise the heck out of me. We do not understand why there is language in the consent decree given the fact that the conduct is so egregious this is that there will not be a penalty against defendants again the cwa is basically saying how do you have that non-admissions clause how do you let them say that this won't be a penalty and the answer is that's that's what they bought that's how a settlement works you actually have to give something to activision blizzard in order for them to sign the document as well and it doesn't change anything whether or not it's a penalty or not it's 18 million dollars so you're talking about angels on the head of a pen And you're doing it to show off for the employees, so that's fine. But it is what it is. Paragraph 15, we object to an automatic expiration of the consent decree. It should expire only upon court approval with notice to all affected claimants. This is where the consent decree actually says that essentially the EEOC will be embedded in Activision Blizzard for three years. Now, there are provisions in the consent decree that allow the EEOC to extend that, especially if they find that Activision has not been complying, but the CWA would have it proceed indefinitely until court approval is granted. Note that paragraph 15 doesn't actually specify on what quantification the court might approve or disapprove of getting rid of the consent decree. We aren't talking about the $18 million, which hopefully will be spent very soon. Once it's signed, we're talking about that embedded personnel at Activision Blizzard. This one, again, I have to view as unwarranted, good try, but it's not the kind of thing that I think should change in a document like this. Paragraph 16, We are concerned that the consent decree agrees that attorneys for the defendant can be present when the EEOC interviews any person who possesses privileged information regarding the topic of the interview. Many of the employees will have what the defendants assert to be privileged information, and this will give the defendants the right to have any attorney present. So that's all right, right? We go to page eight, which is where they direct us to in that email, and we see what this is all about. The EEOC has reserved the right to interview Activision employees without Activision's permission. I mean, they'll make it available, but Activision can't really say no. And so in the circumstances where Activision views that an employee has special information, this consent decree also says that Activision's attorneys may be present. And I think CWA makes a good point here to say, well, okay, they're internal employees of Activision. Aren't they always going to have some amount of information that is privileged, especially in a video game company? space that the next call of duty is going to take place in is privileged and isn't most of the workforce going to know what that is so they make a good point where they lose the point i think is when they try to tie it to collective bargaining it says employees have a section 7 right under the national labor relations act not to have a representative of the company present This will make those interviews intimidating and virtually useless. Furthermore, the provision does not provide that those interviews will be on paid work time. I like that change, actually. It should say that it won't be time off during those interviews. However, Section 7, as we talked about, is about union organizing. It's about concerted action amongst the employees to do something together to improve their work status, whether through a union or otherwise. Getting interviewed by the EEOC for the purposes put forth in the consent decree is not that. And you'll see this kind of conflation of Section 7 here with respect to the training videos that are otherwise being put upon Activision Blizzard, those kinds of things. And you really see the CWA as the actor that it is, which is fine. They're a union. They want to make sure that people can unionize. They want to make sure that people can know that they can unionize. And they tie that to a lot of the complaints here. I think this is the first time that we've really seen that. But it's a poor match for what is an okay point, which is to say, Well, this whole paragraph about interviewing folks is going to have an Activision attorney there because everything is going to be privileged. Paragraph 17, the consent decree gives a large amount of discretion to the proposed claims administrator. We want input into the selection of the claims administrator. Now here, I just flat out disagree. The claims administrator for the most part is doing what you would expect an administrator to do. If we look at this section, what do they do? They're establishing the account in which the trust settlement fund is held. They're receiving and holding that money in the trust. They're establishing a website, an email address, a phone number. The closest I could come to discretionary authority is here in subparagraph F where they say the claims administrator will be responsible for responding to information requests from potential claimants, which to my eye generally reads that they're going to direct them to the website or otherwise to materials that are properly prepared by the EEOC as part of this process. But you could read it to suggest that they could talk about whatever they like to the potential claimants. And that could potentially be an issue. It wouldn't match the rest of this list, however. They're sending notices, they're resending notices, they're communicating, they're paying what the EEOC tells them to pay, they're handling the W-2s and the 1099s, they're communicating with both sides of all of this. They are administrating the movement of funds from Activision Blizzard to these potential claimants as directed by the EEOC. So not really the kind of role that I think needs a lot of input from outside parties. But obviously the CWA disagrees. Paragraph 18. We are concerned that the consent decree limits the amount of information which will be posted on the website and available on recorded messages. So I actually didn't even focus on this when I originally read the the consent decree. But if you go to page 11 as they direct us, you see that information posted on the website, the one we just talked about the claims administrator setting up, and available on a recorded message on the toll-free telephone number will be limited to the general information included in the notice of settlement sent to potential claimants or updated information as to the status of the claims process now if you are on the EEOC's side of how this thing is organized or just trying to understand how the consent decree comes to be this paragraph makes a lot of sense you're trying to limit the ability of any individual party claims administrator even eeoc personnel activision blizzard folks from saying things that are different from summarizing the settlement process or your potential to be a claimant process outside of the bounds of the paper not necessarily through maliciousness but because this stuff is complicated and when somebody asks you these kinds of things you might say something untoward so the website is going to be very specific it's only going to do what is in the settlement it's going to be vetted and the same with the toll-free telephone number which you hear see is referenced as a recorded message we don't want to make mistakes The CWA takes it the other way. Workers have a section seven right, there's that number again, to post unlimited information about workers' conditions and this may serve to limit that right. This is a silly argument. This is not the Activision Blizzard website. This is not business forums. This is not otherwise limiting the employees from doing whatever they like elsewhere. This is a website specifically constructed to inform about this settlement and how to go get your money if it's owed to you. So this isn't a forum this isn't the kind of thing that has to have employees coordinating on it and here again you see the cwa it's history what it's looking to do wants to make sure section seven well represented at activision i don't blame anybody for advocating for their position but that's clearly what they're doing in paragraph 18. paragraph 19 we'd like to see the notice of settlement in the claim form sure none of these matter as much as that release paragraph 20 We would like to know if the eeoc will share the information of those whom the eeoc has not been able to initially locate so that the cwa can provide any additional information and there you're getting to privacy issues you get into all sorts of issues the cwa not officially connected with any of this at least as it stands right now now they've represented the court something else maybe that changes things as this goes on i think the court's at least going to have some questions about standing here i can't promise which way that'll go but i certainly have questions myself And in general, the EEOC is not going to say, hey, we're just going to hand over information to whomever asks so that they can help us find these people. There's a process in the consent decree, and that's the process they are likely to follow. Paragraph 21, the EEOC intends to establish general criteria for scoring claims made through the claims forms. We would like to know how the EEOC intends to develop those general criteria and to score claims. We would like input into that process to assure fair distribution and fair remedies. And again, the EOC is not going to hand over its discretionary authority to a labor union trying to become a unionized workforce at this employer. That said, in red on your screen, I think their main point that none of the way the EEOC is going to calculate anything is actually set forth in that settlement is accurate. We don't get any understanding of how those numbers are going to pop out of there. Now they can say it's going to be in comport With the way that they generally are required to calculate these things, as we were talking about in the other documents we discussed as part of this video, but they don't. They just say, we're gonna figure it out. We're gonna put that list together. Claims administrator's gonna get that money out the door. And I think it's a fair complaint. You don't actually see any kind of formula how that's gonna work, or even a reference to the way that it might work on the basis of an EEOC complaint in litigation. Paragraph 22 The EEOC negotiated an hourly rate of $450 an hour for one hour for an eligible claimant to consult a private attorney. That is wholly inadequate. First of all, thanks CWA for helping prop up legal fees. It is not the going rate for skilled and competent attorneys who specialize in these areas in Southern California or in other areas where the employees work. I could actually vouch for this a little bit. I don't charge $450 an hour and I've collected some work from some companies that aren't terribly happy with the going rate of skilled and competent attorneys in Southern California. So I think the CWA might make a point here However, 450 pretty good money for an hour, even for a lawyer. Continuing, furthermore, one hour is not adequate for any competent attorney to review the consent decree and the facts of each individual employee's case. And I highlighted those separately. I was thinking back to when the consent decree was filed and how long I prepped for it to make my own video, obviously not with the same kind of obligation as an attorney representing a client. So we have to take that into account. But it probably took me about an hour to read through just the consent decree to prepare for the video, to highlight it, to be ready to talk about it with you all. But that doesn't include any analysis of the individual employee's case. And really the CWA could have made this point a little bit better by saying, not only do you need those two facts in your back pocket, you actually also need to have at least a working understanding of what's happening with the department's case. Because one of the things that you will likely be doing is advising someone in the room as to whether they should sign their name to a piece of paper because they're going to give up certain ability to go and participate in that other lawsuit, so a you're going to get fifty thousand right now. Is that worth it to you? If you're going to lose the ability to participate in the California lawsuit, and the question might be, well, how much is that worth? The right answer from a lawyer is, I have no idea. Litigation goes from zero to more. California looks like they're very interested in litigating this and not settling it, even though most of these finish with a settlement. So who knows there, but. Advice on that will result in needing to understand both sides of this equation, if not more. Activision Blizzard is under investigation from a whole bunch of other places, and we just saw CWA's filed a charge with the National Labor Relations Board. So you basically have to have a working understanding of all those things. Chances are, if I were quoting this out to someone, I would probably say something like three hours. Uh, and so I think this is a well-made point. It certainly seems like a very limited amount of time to actually advise these people on the concerns that they might otherwise have. Or as the CWA says, no attorney will agree to such a limit because it would constitute malpractice. We do have to watch for that. This seems to be a complete and utter disregard for what would be a meaningful consultation paid for by the defendants. Now I will say, and this isn't provided for in the consent decree, but if you did have that working understanding, you could probably actually talk to any given employee pretty fast. If there was one person or even a couple people that were handling all of these for this particular group once you have that working understanding then the actual understanding of each individual employee's case and the number put forth before them is probably a little bit easier it's that baseline research of understanding the consent decree the department's case potentially the national labor relations board case maybe the sec Who knows that you would have to have an understanding of before you could properly advise these people. This paragraph is a great example of why when folks DM me things in Twitter, I can't opine as to their legal situation. You can't ask me a question in comments to YouTube. I can't give formal legal advice because as they say, you have to get up to speed with someone's individual circumstances or else it's malpractice. That's why the disclaimers exist at the end of this video. That's why they exist in the description to these videos. That's why you see them all over the place. That's why tweets are not legal advice, et cetera, et cetera. So if you ever ask that question, it exists right here in paragraph 22 where the CWA would have me brought up on charges. Paragraph 23, the consent decree provides for the employment of an equal employment opportunity consultant. CWA would like input into that decision. Does the EEOC have any proposed consultants? Can we evaluate them? And at least here... Just like with respect to the release document, this is the important one. They make a lot of other cases for notices and claims forms and things like that. We want to have an insight into the claims administrator. That doesn't matter. This one matters. This is the person that is going to be charged by the EEOC with fixing Activision. They're the ones that are going to be going over the workplace procedures, coming up with new internal complaint procedures, helping to advise and train Activision Blizzard to hopefully comport to the way that the EEOC wants them to be evaluating these things so that they don't run afoul of Title VII and federal law again. This is an important person, but because it's so important, it does seem to me that the EEOC's working stance here is that we're in charge of figuring out how to best represent the employees here. We're the ones saddled with enforcing Title VII and making sure that discrimination and harassment are fought properly. No, you can't evaluate them. Maybe we can bring you into the tent for some of these conversations. But again, I think the EEOC is just as likely to, to put the fence around itself because it views itself as being in charge of these things, and it's not wrong there. Continuing with paragraph 24... We have the same questions about the internal EEO coordinator. Do we have input into the hiring and or approval of who that will be? Why is that just one? Again, wasted time. Much like the claims administrator, the coordinator here is just in charge of bringing documents to the EEO consultant. And so you don't want to fight over this if you're the CWA. If the EOC said, yeah, we'll talk about the waiver form and we'll talk about the EEO consultant, you won the day at CWA. Unlikely that the EOC will do that. And they're just throwing every single thing they can at the wall. But the actual coordinator, we've looked at the consent document in this space, not nearly as important as the other role. Paragraph 25, the consent decree provides for the defendants to submit workplace policies and procedures. We would like to see a copy of any such policies. Now, now this gets weird, right? If we go into the consent decree, page 27 and 28, so we're going to be scrolling for a second here, but I can prep you for it. You're going to see a description of the current Activision Blizzard documentation. That that's what we're actually talking about here. And as we saw in the complaint that was filed against Activision Blizzard by the investors of that company, Activision Blizzard already has robust words on a page. They already have what you would hope to see from a major company saying, we hate harassment, we hate discrimination, this is an inclusive workplace, etc., etc. Or as this says, defendants have created and maintained a centralized intranet location for their existing policies and procedures, including those regarding discrimination, harassment, and or related retaliation. This is the paperwork that they already have. Defendants will work with the EEO consultant to review those and revise them as necessary, which is a little bit more what I would imagine the CWA cares about. But they want to see the current policies and procedures. The weird thing about that is if they're in contact with a number of employees at Activision Blizzard, those employees have access to those things. Now, there could be confidentiality issues. There could be non-disclosure issues. They may not want to admit that they could see those things right now in a document like this one. All fair. But the practical matter on the ground is that if they do have that contact point in the Activision Blizzard, they have access to those materials. Continuing, when can we see them and when can we evaluate them and have any any input into whether they are lawful or serve the purposes of the consent decree? What do they really care about? We want to make sure that they do not interfere with Section 7 rights and the right to organize in state laws. Understand. As of right now, yes, there's been a charging document filed with the National Labor Relations Board by the CWA. This is not a complaint about problems with unionization, Activision Blizzard hurting attempts to unionize or concerted collective action. This is a separate issue. The CWA is putting itself in and saying, we need to make sure that their paperwork covers not harming union activities. That's fine. You're a union. I get it. But you're jumping in with an issue that is at least adjacent to the one directly facing the EEOC and certainly under the EEOC's purview. Go talk to the National Liberal Relations Board. Paragraph 26. The consent decree provides for the establishment of an internal complaint investigation procedure. Again, CWA would like to see a copy of any such procedure. It hasn't been built yet. This is what the EEO consultant is going to work with Activision Blizzard to do. Paragraph 27. The consent decree provides that the confidentiality of the complaint, complainant, and investigation shall be maintained to the fullest extent possible. We are concerned that this may be construed to prohibit employees from talking about unlawful conduct, harassment, investigation among themselves. This is protected by Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act. Now here we get just, again, a kind of specious reading of the section in question. We go to page 32, lines 1 to 4, and we can see what's at issue here. This is talking about how complaints are going to be received. And we see that we will give an assurance that no complainant shall be required to confront his or her alleged harasser and that the confidentiality of the complaint, complainant, and investigation shall be maintained to the fullest extent possible. I agree that this could be written better. There's a lot of passive voice here, and you could establish that this is clearly Activision talking. Defendants will work with the EEO consultant to make sure their investigation procedure ensures effectiveness and to ensure that it incorporates these elements in which Activision Blizzard won't be leaking information out about your complaint. Not that you can't talk about whatever you want to talk about. This is the the HIPAA of readings of these kinds of sections. And if you're not familiar with that, the internet thinks everything is protected by HIPAA. You're always allowed to tell somebody you broke your leg. It's the doctor that can't tell somebody on your behalf that you broke your leg. Activision Blizzard here is saying, we can't tell somebody about your harassment. This says nothing about what you can talk about with respect to that harassment. So I I get wanting to protect the employees that you want to be in your union, but this isn't a very helpful reading of that particular section. Paragraph 28, only a few more to go, folks. We are concerned that the trainings, compliance trainings on pages 33 and 34 that we'll take a look at are adequate and also that they incorporate training to employees as well as managers about the workplace rights of employees. This must include Section 7 rights under the National Labor Relations Act as well as other rights under state and federal law. Why is this not being coordinated with the General Counsel of the National Labor Relations Board? probably because this is a charging document related to sexual harassment and pregnancy discrimination. This is the, uh, sir, this is a Wendy's of legal responses. But if we go and we look at page 33 and 34, you can see what compliance training is about. First, we note that it's for supervisory employees. It's not for everybody. And the trainings are designed to address what you would expect them to address in this context. What constitutes discrimination, harassment, retaliation? What are employees and employers' rights and responsibilities if they experience or become aware of discrimination, harassment, or retaliatory action. What is the nature of a bystander intervention, including examples of how to effectively intervene when you see this kind of stuff happening? A component on civility in the workplace. What your new workplace policies and procedures and your new internal complaint procedure is going to be. Keep a pin in that. That's going to come back around. Contact information for all the people you need to contact. And a statement from a senior executive emphasizing that harassment prevention, maintaining a respectful workplace, and diversity are high priorities for defendants. Now, You can make the argument that if you're ordered in a consent decree that's going to be covered by a court, then maybe the veracity of your statement about how important your harassment prevention and respectful workplace is could be questioned. After all, you were ordered to say these things, but I'll leave that for brighter minds than mine. Either way, when we're talking about this, in no way are workplace rights of employees implicated. So you just have the CWA very focused, very on point wanting to make sure that this shop can still unionize. Paragraph 29, two hours of training of human resources employees is woefully inadequate. It should be required semi-annually and workers should be allowed to attend. And much like we just talked about, what this specific consent decree is interested in is training related to what we're talking about in this settlement, right? Training of at least two hours that includes role-playing and emphasizes accountability of management and documenting and reporting complaints of gender discrimination, harassment, and or retaliation. This is presumably not the only human resources training that they will receive all year. In fact, human resources is a group in most employers that's going to have a lot of trainings. It's going to have a lot of employees invited to a lot of trainings. But the CWA seems to be under the notion that this will be the only training that the HR employees will receive. Either that or they just really want training on this particular issue to occur more often with workers being allowed to attend. Paragraph 30, the consent decree should include training of workers about how to respond to the illegal and improper conduct alleged to the complainant. This should include training with respect to how to report retaliation and the scope of the consent decree. Now, it doesn't cover the consent decree exactly, but certainly, as we saw above, you have the new internal complaint procedure as part of the compliance trainings for supervisors. Can that be extended to employees? I don't see why not. Maybe CWA has a point here that the workers should be more party to this. And then you get paragraph 31. Employer representatives should be required to read a summary of the consent decree to workers. I don't know precisely why it should be required that it be read to them. I certainly think you could say, hey, it has to be sent to them. Maybe they even have to sign something that acknowledges that they received it. It being read to them is just odd. It's not the usual course of business for these kinds of things. Uh, And so those are the 31 flavors of union complaint. Obviously, as I said, as part of this whole process, I think there's some legitimate grievances here. In particular, I don't think that the waiver concept, the release concept is properly fleshed out, at least for an outside party to be able to understand. Now the EEOC says that doesn't matter so much because all we're saying is we're not gonna have the right to sue and if nobody else signs up to any of this, nothing else happens and California can go about its merry business and sue however they like and get money for those employees, if they can in fact do so. But still, there are question marks as an outside party as to how this is supposed to work, how the EEOC is supposed to calculate its business. And I get that. I stand with California and Union complaining about those particular issues. On the other hand, half of this document, at least, is so obviously just pushing to make sure that nothing gets in the way of what the CWA hopes is a unionization effort at Activision Blizzard and maybe even other video game companies, that it does tend to discount some of their more legitimate grievances in my eyes. Now, this isn't something that was sent to the EEOC with the intent that the EEOC would respond to it. It was sent by CWA essentially for purposes of attaching it as an exhibit to this request for a fairness hearing, which we'll see whether the court grants or not. But at the end of the day, for the most part, it's a marketing document. It presents some good points. They want to be able for the employees to see this, that they're fighting for them, and to think about that when cards are passed around to potentially have an election for CWA. Don't really have a problem with that as a procedure, but certainly it's a little bit unusual and will be worth watching as this particular litigation continues and continues and continues. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed talking about things like business and law of video games, popular culture, please consider supporting the channel. We've got a Patreon to support us. We've also got other ways to support the channel, which you can find in the description. Otherwise, just subscribing, telling your friends we're having these conversations, posting these videos on Reddit or Twitter or wherever else you might find yourself. Every little bit is helpful. And I'm so, so grateful for helping grow the channel in that way. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality.